We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of our podcast, a podcast about community and possibility. On We Can Be, we will hear leaders working in and around social change tell their story. Some you may have heard of, and some will be new to you, but all have stories about how they came to believe that together, we can be a stronger neighborhood, city, state, country, and world. Today we speak with Nick Grimes, a post 9-11 veteran who served two tours in Afghanistan. Founding fathers, flawed men, brilliant men though, and the most profound thing I think they ever wrote is in order to form a more perfect union, right? Like it was never in order to form a perfect union. And those words are eternal, right? A more perfect, we always should strive to form a more perfect union. Like we're never gonna get to perfect. But as former President Obama recently said, like better is always better. That moved me uh, unbelievably. Like and it's such a simple concept, but better is always better. I love that, better is always better. That's the work. There's been much written about the struggles that post-9-11 veterans are having with reintegration into civilian society. But what about the strengths they bring? I met Nick Grimes at a program called Community Leadership Course for Veterans. Nick has now become an important recorder of the stories of post-9-11 veterans through an organization called Veterans Breakfast Club and his podcast, Longest War. Nick, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. I need to honor you by acknowledging that you're the person who actually inspired me to do this podcast. So to the extent that people like it or not, you're to blame or you get the credit. <laughs> you're representing post-9-11 veterans. Let's talk a little bit about your childhood and what formed you and how you went into the service to begin with and what you experienced there. But you grew up in Alabama, correct? I did. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama. That's about as far south as you can possibly get, right on the Gulf Coast. I joined the Army at 19. I was a young, evangelical, conservative. I wasn't ready to go to college yet. Last thing I wanted to do was sit in a classroom for another four years. So it was kind of expected, almost. You know, either you go to school or you go to the Army. Uh, And I chose the Army. As a white, evangelical, conservative kid, I get to basic training and... My battle buddy there that they paired me up with was this black kid with a jerry curl from Brooklyn that had the satanic Bible with him. (laughs) You could imagine people that you grew up with quite literally saying he went off into the army and was tempted by Satan to go in a different direction. I was concerned about this arrangement. I was like, this is uh, is problematic A little bit of culture shock happened. Yeah. I didn't mind so much that he was black. That satanic Bible was really freaking me out. Six weeks into basic training, he was like, look, man, it's not going to bite you. Just take a look at it. Take a read. And I read through it, and I was like, oh, this is not... I I was expecting all these, like, crazy spells or something, and it was just like this... It was just another book, right? So that was, like, my first real eye-opening experience to, like, someone who was just dramatically different from me in every way possible. And we ended up being best friends. I mean, it was... He's a great guy. When you are forced to rely on the guy next to you... Nothing about him matters, right, except for the fact that, like, you love and trust that guy. That's something you hear across generations. At a breakfast we had, we had a World War II vet. He was a Normandy veteran. And he said the thing he missed most about the military is he didn't fucking care if the guy on the left or right of him was a Democrat, Republican, Jew, Catholic. Like, it didn't matter. 
they didn't have to be worried about that stuff. I think that's one of the things I miss most about the military as well. Because like, it doesn't matter. Like drill sergeants at basic, I was saying, is like there's no black, there's no white, there's no yellow, there's no purple, there's, there's only green. That's all you are. You're, you're all green. It dawned on me pretty early that like our strength was in our diversity because we all would approach problem solving from different perspectives and lenses and worldviews and all this stuff. And we could lean on each other's strengths. It's so important to hear that phrase from somebody who grew up where you grew up and with the background that you have. You were in combat for 27 months? Yeah, I did a couple of tours of Afghanistan. Like my first tour was 15 months in Afghanistan. I was single, no kids, anything like that, full of piss and vinegar. And that experience was what it was. Uh, then I come home, get married, have a child. He's about a year old at the time when I leave. and. You know, I remember we're, we're riding down one of the MSRs one day. An MSR is? Uh, main supply route. We were in an area that was relatively hostile to us. So I see a guy, he's just sitting outside, and he's got his kid on his lap, and he's just bouncing him and playing peekaboo with him. And that guy could have been Taliban. He could have been Al-Qaeda, he could have been whatever. But regardless of what he was, you know, he was still a father. For whatever imperfections he had, I have no doubt that he loved his son. You know, he loved his family, just like I did. This guy uh -huh. could be shooting at us later. But shit, we got a lot in common. That was a turning point for me. And it also made me question, really for the first time, like, what are we doing here? Like, what is the point of all of this? And I still don't know how I feel about that. That's, that's troubled me for a long time. Depending on what day of the week you ask me, like, I'll give you, you know, wildly different answers. Like, sometimes I just feel like it wasn't worth it. We lost a lot of guys, lost a lot of friends. But then, you know, I talked to guys like Sarab, who's an interpreter over there who now lives in the U.S., and he's like, when the Americans came in, we felt hope for the first time in a long time. Like, our girls can go to school now. We can listen to music. We can watch television. We couldn't do any of that stuff before. We had to live in constant fear. And so, I, I mean, we did do some good. What we read in the media is the stories of the hardship of combat, the trauma of the experience, the trauma of the return. And what's fascinating to me is you're talking about the human story. How do you think you got there? Was that where you started when you came out of the military? Were you sort of focused in on that as your takeaway then? My first like year or two out, like I had terrible case of like cognitive dissonance over what I had just been through and trying to process all of that. And it made me kind of reclusive. Like I'm not from Pittsburgh. We moved to Pittsburgh. I didn't know anybody. I knew one guy that I'd grown up with. So I had him, but that was pretty much it. And I didn't go out of my way to meet any new people at all. And it wasn't until 2013, Megan Andros, the program officer here at the Heinz Endowments, my wife met her. They became close she invited me to come to this session for this new program, Community Leadership Course for Veterans. I met Rodney Oliphant there, president of Leadership Pittsburgh. Who, in full disclosure, is my wife. Is your wife, yes. Um, or better put, I'm her husband. <laughs> this is better put, yes, you are her husband. Yes. <laughs> um, and she asked a lot of like tough questions to us about like our military experience, but not in a like dismissive, trivial kind of way. Like, it was the first time like somebody had asked me about my experience, and as soon as I had finished talking, they didn't immediately start speaking. So I could tell that she wasn't thinking of what she was going to say next while we were all talking. She was actually listening to what we were saying. She was actually interested and was really excited about the possibility of starting a program for veterans. She eventually, they did, Leadership Pittsburgh started that program. I was in the inaugural cohort, and I got to be plugged in with you know 19 other young post-9-11 veterans. 
And that was the thing that really got me out, got me out of the house. The Community Leadership Course for Veterans connects veterans like Nick with leaders in the community, issues in the community, provides a grounding in what's going on and also a network. Why is that important? I was convinced when I left the Army that I'll never have friends like those friends. I'll never be close with anyone like I am with those guys. But I also thought, like, well, since I'll never have friends like that, like, there's no point in socializing myself with other people. And while it's true that I will never have friends that close, like, you can get pretty close. You know, meeting other vets that served in the same general area that I served, like, we've become very close over the years. And then plugging it in with community leaders, it kind of opened my eyes to, like, you know, just because I'm not serving in the military anymore, like, doesn't mean I can't still serve in some capacity. Like, there's still plenty to fight for. That was very encouraging. Our country seems to have a fundamental misunderstanding about what returning vets have experienced overseas, as well as the struggles they have upon returning to the United States. Issues like PTSD or the view that veterans are somehow broken seems to dominate the narrative. And we've learned from our work at the Heinz Endowments that it's simply not the case. What do we tend to get wrong in our thoughts about veterans as a country? Oh, gosh, I hate to do this. Do it. So there's an organization called the Wounded Warrior Project, one of the most effective branding organizations that I've ever seen. And they have, through their depiction of veterans as these like broken, wounded souls coming back, have really been the driving force behind the narrative of like how the public views post 9-11 vets. They think we have sky high rates of PTSD, that you know we're all broken in some sort of way, that we're on the edge of breaking at all times. When you see a veteran living under a bridge, it's schizophrenic, right, that just talking crazy. They were certainly, almost certainly, schizophrenic before they joined the military, right? Like this, the lion's share of us are, if we're not perfectly well adjusted, we're adjusted enough to society. Uh, like I've got PTSD, I have friends with PTSD. It's never caused me to miss work, right? Like it's, right. it's small things that I have to deal with on a day-to-day -day life, but there's a large percentage of the civilian population with PTSD as well, you know? PTSD is not specifically from combat. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, child abuse, sexual abuse, things that go on in this country. Lots of people that have PTSD and lots of like successful, influential people that have PTSD. So the stigma that's attached to it that, you know, we're all broken and that we're all dysfunctional in some sort of way, it's dangerous. And we face different challenges coming back. World War II, those vets came back. It wasn't nearly as difficult for them to find employment, right? Because over the last 40 years, give or take, the modern world had been busy bombing the shit out of itself. There was no industry. So like America had to, we had to make up for that. Right. So there was a job waiting for almost everyone that came back in some manufacturing field and something. It hasn't been that way for us. And also with most of the other wars, there was this like shared burden of there's a substantial portion of the population that served at that point. World War II, Korea, and Vietnam due to the drafts. So the wars kind of touched everybody. There are people, you know, in Pittsburgh right now that have never met, knowingly met, you know, a post-9-11 vet. They don't know anybody that served. Is that partly because post-9-11 vets are more reluctant to talk about their service? Although you hear this about vets from World War II, too, that they didn't want to talk about what they'd seen in combat. They were known to have served. And what I find is that a lot of post 9-11 vets don't identify as vets um, in a public way. Yeah, and a lot of us don't go back home. We don't yeah. go back to where we're from originally when we get out. So, you know, if I were to go back to Mobile, people would say, oh, 
Nick was, he was in the army. That's where he was. Like, so they, they would know, you know, I wouldn't have to talk about it. Moving to a place like Pittsburgh, no one has any idea unless I mention it. And it's, yeah, it's like, there's reluctance to bring it up because of the stigma. And then there's also, it's like, well, what's the point of bringing it up in a conversation just so I can be thanked for my service? Like, that's a whole nother issue that we've gone on is this thank you for your service stuff. I appreciate the gesture, but I, I feel like it's, we're overcompensating for how terribly we treated the Vietnam vets. Mm. So people go out of their way to thank us. And I feel like it's empty sometimes. And it's just, and I don't know how to react to it. I don't know what to say. Like, you're welcome. That feels weird. Um, <laughs> right, right. And we've heard that from a lot of your colleagues, too. Yeah, it's pretty common. Sort of it's just that, a weird thing yeah. to be told. And it sounds perfunctory now when people say it. It's meant to be polite, I think. But the point you're making is in part that veterans have so much more to offer than we tend to think of. We miss the capacity of veterans to make a, a bigger difference. Uh, my favorite quote of all time, Ernest Hemingway, the world breaks everyone and afterwards some are strong at the broken places. Mm. And that's like when you meet a, a wounded vet, like, yeah, like that's, he's wounded, but he's not broken, right? Like that guy has gone through a lot of shit and they've come out the other side much stronger for it. And they should be seen more as assets than, you know, burdens, certainly. So you were, what kind of MP were you? I was a military police officer, like gun on hand, drove in a military police car. And like harassing all of us, just, just trying to have a good time, trying to ruin our good time for us. That kind of MP, the typical MP. Pretty much. Oh, man. <laughs> it, but you was... look so nice. Like, how could you be like that? <laughs> Uh, so you reserves for 11 years. Also, you are the president of the Penn Hills Youth Football Association. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you guys do? And how did your military experience prep you to, to take on that role? You're in charge in part of a storytelling project at an organization called the Veterans Breakfast Club, which brings together all types of veterans. And you're really particularly trying to capture the stories of post 9-11 vets. Why is it important that we hear the stories that you and your fellow vets have to say? Like our mission statement is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories. Everyone in our organization has a different reason for why we do what we do. Like my boss, Todd, he's a historian. He is very much interested in the, the posterity, say, capturing these stories. I personally feel that if civilians hear from veterans about the truth of war, truth of combat, like warts and all, what it's really like, then maybe they'll think twice when they cast that next vote. Combat is ugly. It's vicious. It's, it's not to be taken lightly. And I feel like more civilians just need to hear what the truth of that is and what it does to young people. We were kids. Kids fight these wars. When I was over there, I was, what, 18, 19 years old. I was a baby. Like, I'm 32 now, and I feel very young. And thinking about that being a decade ago, like, kind of scares the shit out of me. Of Like, right. if I'm this young now, like, how young was I back then? Right. How responsible was I back then? So I think it's really important for civilians to hear these stories, just so they know. And also so they know that, that we're not all broken. We've gone through all these relatively traumatic experiences, but like I said, we've come out the other side stronger. And a lot of us are really involved on a per capita basis, like, more so than the civilian population, like, in community work after we get out. There's organizations like The Mission Continues, No One Left Behind, that do a lot of really great work in underserved communities. And it's, you know, these are led by veterans. Veterans go into these communities that a lot of people are afraid of for whatever reason. Here in Pittsburgh, you know, Homewood. I don't know how many times I've heard people like, oh, you don't want to go to Homewood. Homewood's dangerous. I'm like, well, <laughs> is it Fallujah? Is it Kandahar? Like, how many, 
rocket-propelled grenades do they have in Homewood? None? All right, well, I feel relatively safe there. You know, veterans, we go out in these communities, and they welcome us with open arms because we're people showing up without an agenda. Like, I've got nothing to gain by going out there. I mean, I do. Personally, I have the sense of belonging, the sense of purpose, the sense of continuing to serve, but I'm not there to, to take anything from anyone. I'm there to, to give to the community. Why is that idea of continuing to serve so important to veterans? And some could argue that you've done your part and you would be, I think, perfectly entitled to sit back and say, okay, I've done my bit, but why is it so important? I feel like it's probably for the same reason that young people that get involved in the nonprofit sector tend to stay in the nonprofit sector. When you're a part of this thing that's bigger than you, that you really find to be meaningful and impactful in some sort of way, it's hard to envision yourself going to work, you know, as some venture capitalist, right? I don't see myself being happy if I were to go work at a bank, you know, I don't think I could ever do that. So I have to do something that I feel like I'm contributing something back to society. And there's also this idea of kind of balancing the ledger too a bit, because I mean, there were some things in Afghanistan and Iraq that we have done that like war is ugly and messy and things happen sometimes. For some of us, there's this idea of kind of, you know, balancing that out with doing more good back home. And we want to show people, I didn't fight for you, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't fight for president of BNY or whatever. Like, I fought for everybody, right? I fought for you as just as much as, like, the kids in Homewood. You right. know what I mean? Like, that's, like, these are my people. Like, these are, we're Americans. We're all on the same team. And we want to make our team as strong and as good as possible. I'm so inspired to hear Nick talk about unity and bringing people together, especially considering how divided we as a nation seem to be right now. That divisiveness seems to have spread across all aspects of our society and culture. Take Colin Kaepernick and his decision to kneel during the national anthem in protest of police treatment of the African-American community, and how political partisans have tried to use that issue to further divide us along racial and service lines. It is my contention, and I could be wrong, that uh, Colin Kaepernick does not understand the big picture of his country. Here, here's the problem with Kaepernick. When you put yourself in a position to criticize and disrespect, which is exactly what he did, mm -hmm. the national anthem and your flag on 9-11, on that day, mm -hmm. then you better have a pretty damn good reason why you're doing it. But to impose your negative view, your unpatriotic view, in my opinion, on the fans, mm -hmm. The company that they work for, the 49ers or any other team, has the absolute right to say you cannot do that. Part of what makes this country special is we respect people's rights to have a different opinion. And the test of our fidelity to our Constitution, to freedom of speech, is not when it's easy, but when it's hard. But that's what freedom means in this country. I do hope that anybody who's trying to express any political view of any sort understands that they do so under the blanket of the protection of our men and women in uniform, uh, and that that appreciation of that sacrifice is never lost. Sitting where you do in the role that you have and as a veteran, how do you look at all of that? This specifically, the case of the NFL protest, is a case of like willful ignorance on a lot of people's behalf. Mm -hmm. When Kaepernick first started protesting, he was sitting on the bench on the sideline. And there was a guy that was a long snapper for the Seahawks who was a former Green Beret. 
And he wrote an open letter to Kaepernick and was like, hey, I support your right to protest, but could we have a conversation to maybe go about it in a slightly different way? And so they met and the veteran suggested, he's like, instead of sitting, take a knee. It's a pious act, uh, it shows reverence. For example, when service members killed and the flag from uh, their coffin is transferred to the widow, the officer takes a knee and hands it to her, right? It's, very, it's, a, it's a symbol of respect. So at the same time, you can show reverence to the flag, but also be different and show that you're taking a stand for something. And what did Kaepernick do? He did exactly that because he didn't, intentions matter, and he was not intending to disrespect right. veterans, disrespect the flag. He wanted to call attention to these racial inequality, social injustice, uh, and police brutality, things that are real issues. If you don't believe they're an issue, I could see why you think this is an affront, right? But it's really hard for me to understand how people in 2017 don't grasp the idea that these are real challenges and real issues. And, you know, another example, like some of the players that are protesting, you know, have literally risked their lives going overseas to visit troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it, it seems ludicrous to me to say, oh, they're unpatriotic when they've done more to support the troops than 99% of civilians ever have. It's a pretty clear generational divide over this stuff, too. Most of the younger vets were supportive of it, the older vets. Which I guess I get where you're coming from. You know, if you storm Normandy to fight Nazis, you may view the flag and all the pageantry and everything slightly differently than Vietnam or post-9-11 veterans do. I don't know if we can bridge this gap. We've had conversations with people that disagree. And, and I'll be honest, I feel very strongly about this. And this is not a popular thing to say, but if a gold star widow or mother came in and explained to me why they felt disrespected by it, it's not going to change my position on it. And conversely, if I go and explain myself to a, you know, older veteran that's against it, it's not going to change his position on it. What's one of the most moving stories you've heard from the vets that you've been pulling together to tell their stories? One of the guys we had speak is really close with us now, George Hott. He was in the Battle of Way City in Vietnam. Brutal, brutal 30 days of combat. Uh, it took him 48 years to share that experience. Just to share the story? Just to share with anyone. I mean, he's, he's talked about it with guys that he served with, but he brought his family to a breakfast that we had. He brought his daughter, his grandkids. He's like, I'm going to tell this story one time. And he told it, and it was so therapeutic for him that he's told it, I don't know, probably two dozen times since then. Oh. The, the way that the older veterans have kind of like supported us, the young veterans. Don't be tough guys like we were, right? Don't bottle it up. Does you no good. Does you no good to let it stew for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Like, get it out now. So it's encouraging me that there's so many young men and women of our generation that are talking about their experiences openly, that hopefully we can avoid some of the pitfalls that the older generations ended up dealing with as they got a little bit older. I think of the work you're doing as a source of hope because I think it always matters when people tell their stories. When you get up in the morning every day and go to work and have a sense of, I am continuing my mission, what gives you hope in that mission? That's such a tough question. Like everything about it. I just love what I do so much. So anytime a veteran shares their story, regardless of what generation they are, every other veteran in the room, regardless of what generation they are, understands their own experience a little bit more. You know, some truth previously that they weren't aware of is kind of revealed to them. And the fact that we get to do that 60 times a year, it's special. And the, the, you know, the range of the stories, they're funny, they're sad, they're horrifying, they're uplifting, like they run the gamut. And just seeing like, that we've all, for the most part, pulled through it and made it through to the other side, relatively sane and in one piece, I mean, that's hopeful. I don't know, it's just, there's so much that I love about it. 
I want to wrap up, but before I do, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, if you're a young veteran listening to this outside of the Pittsburgh area and you're unsure of what your path is, Pittsburgh is the place to be for young post-9-11 vets. We've got the most robust post-9-11 community of anywhere really in the country. Tons of opportunities here. There's great network support. We have great organizations that do great work with vets, and we could always use more. Dang, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's an excellent ad for the region. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell a very, very quick story about yeah. that. Since I left Alabama when I was 19 and joined the Army, like I didn't feel like I was home anywhere. And two years ago, we were coming back from Christmas from my wife's house in Nashville, and we get close to Washington, PA, and like I felt myself thinking, like, all right, we're almost home. Anytime when we were stationed at Fort Campbell or Fort Drum, like I didn't, I never felt like oh, I'm almost home. I just felt like, oh, I'm almost at the place where we reside right now. Pittsburgh feels like home to me. Like there is nowhere else I would rather be in the world than Pittsburgh right now. It's got everything in the world going for it right now. The people are great. The weather. <laughs> Not so great. It's cold, <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I just, I love it. Nick's reintegration, as with many other veterans, was challenging. When I first met Nick, he really didn't talk much. In fact, he seemed angry and distant. What I've watched happen with Nick as he became connected with the community and found his own voice is that he's awakened into a man who is actively helping his fellow veterans find their voices and tell their stories and making from that a personal mission to rebuild community and knit this place we call America back together again. It has been an honor to watch and to be a party to. Them.